What's up? I am Miguel Antonio, and this is the Live and Create Podcast. It's where I talk to artists and entrepreneurs about living a great life and creating great things. This is the pre-COVID edition. It's a series of interviews that I did back in 2019, but even though a year has gone by and a whole lot of things have happened, I wanted to get these people's stories out to you. Today's guest is Eric Ryan Johnson. He's a music performer and educator out of Tulsa, Oklahoma. We dive into topics ranging from 1921 race riots and massacre that happened right in Tulsa, all the way to his philosophy behind education and what it can do to inspire people to live a great life. I hope you guys enjoy. The Live and Create Podcast. If you're going to live in Oklahoma, Tulsa's the place to live. Yeah. Well, man, I'm, I'm just impressed with, and we're rolling too, just as an answer. Okay. That's but uh, I'm impressed with what is out here. Just my short knowledge of, right. like, the breezes I talked with, I was like, what's going on in the music scene out here? And that was one of my goals on this tour, is just to meet as many folks mm-hmm. as I could, learn about each kind of area that I'm going through. Yeah. And it's like, you guys got a lot going on oh, in so Tulsa. Much. Um, when I moved here 20 years ago, you could park anywhere you wanted in the middle of the street on the sidewalk which as i experienced this morning you can't do you can't do anymore (laughs) and so i keep telling myself this is a good problem as i drive around and around like we we have more people and this is good (laughs) right to pay for parking (laughs) so but um the whole brady arts district uh, it's now called the tulsa arts district renaming um just north of here yeah uh it, when I first moved here, there were a few art galleries and a couple bars, but now it's it's a bunch of satellite museums. The Woody Guthrie Center is there. It's amazing. Nice. Um, there's uh, the Guthrie, Guthrie Green, which is a big lawn concert area. Really? I you got to see that. I have not seen uh, it. I, I just kind of rolled in yesterday, yeah. met you guys uh-huh. at the is it Foolish, shop, things, Foolish Things, right? And then I had to head out to my show, show. Yeah. <laughs> my house show. Yeah. So. Oh, you gotta head over there. Um, just go over, over the bridge and check it out. Yeah, check it out. So, That's cool. It's kind of sad that this bridge divides everything. Um, you know, from um, and that's one thing I noticed when I first moved here to Tulsa, mm-hmm. uh, where you still feel the effects of the 1921 uh, uh, massacre. What? Uh, so I saw some the, stuff about that. What is that? Well, it was originally called the race riot. Okay, um, but. What happened was there was an altercation, um, conversation. Somebody bumped into somebody. Somebody was accosted. It was hard to tell, you know, from historical accounts. But what happened was um, there was a, a mass attack on mm. the north side of of Tulsa, which was largely kind of like African a retaliation American. thing in right, a sense. Or right. so um, I live in a historic neighborhood, mm. on the Heights, and our house um, was bought new um, in 1919 from, uh, by a Dr. Wall. Okay. He was president of the Medical Society of Tulsa for an unprecedented two years. Um, <laughs> and he was going to move back to Oklahoma City, where he had previously lived. Um, and there was actually in our abstract was a, 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 it was a, like a, some paperwork where he was going to sell to a man, a man named Ira Short. He was the county commissioner-elect okay. of Tulsa. And um, the night before the race riot, um, I believe it was the night before, um, he was called to the courthouse, um, Ira Short was, to, by mm-hmm. the sheriff, to protect the prisoner, the African-American man. So there was a mob was basically going sheriff. after him. Right, they were going to lynch him. Wow. Um, one of them stood on the 
on the roof and the other one stood on the steps with their shotguns and they dispersed the crowd. They did, okay. And that's when the crowd apparently went and started their uh, their massacre. So they went into the community right. and just and unleashed a, on who they found. There's a little hill just over the highway and in, in the 50s and 60s people used to go up there and, and make out and stuff, but it, it's called Standpipe Hill. Mm-hmm. And that's where the National Guard put their Gatlin gun and trained it in North Tulsa. Um, and they just started shooting yep. anyone? And, and uh, there were firebombs dropped from airplanes. Oh, shit. Um, neighbor, whole neighborhoods set ablaze. Um, there's an area that's known as uh, Black Wall Street. It's over by the new baseball stadium. Okay. Um, there's lots of plaques in the sidewalk of where the businesses used to be. Yeah. And uh, very little that was left standing. And they're dropping literal bombs mm-hmm. on civilians. Yeah. Yep. Um, there are theaters and it was a thriving arts or it was a thriving business district for the black community. Man. And uh, so lots of jealousy, hatred and racism, of course. But um, Dr. Wall decided not to sell our house and stay here for another 30 years. Um, after the uh, massacre, he um, and the Medical Society of Tulsa helped uh, raise funds and mm-hmm. get equipment for the African-American doctors because they all worked out of their homes. Yeah, was he African-American as well? Um, no, or? he wasn't. Okay. Um, nor were any of the, the doctors in the Medical Society. They were all white. Yeah. So the exclusion. I guess at that time right. it was kind of the, right. the thing. And but. if you were African-American, you weren't going to be going to a, a hospital. You weren't allowed you weren't allowed right. um, at all. Yeah. Like, wasn't even a case. Can't afford it. No, no poverty. I don't, I don't think you would have been allowed to. That's wild. So they all went to uh, black doctors, and mm. they all lost their places of practice in the riot. And hmm. so, um, a lot of people were put in a, a field called McNulty Field. It's over where the Home Depot is. Okay. And you know, if you were picked up on the street, or if you were injured, or you, know, you were basically. Uh, imprisoned in the field. So that's why, and this yeah, is 1920, 1921. So just about a hundred years. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's just not that long ago. No, it's and not. That's what's and, wild. You know, we, uh, up until recently we've had, a, you know, survivors and heard about the stories. And things, yeah. But, you know, uh, I've talked to adults who growing up here in Tulsa never learned about it. It was, uh, well, that's what I'm thinking. I whitewashed, you know. Yeah, they, they weren't taught about it, and they were very surprised to hear it when they were adults that this happened here. Yeah. So. How many people do they know, or do they know how many people died? Uh, I think it was the year? most in the country, of, uh, and I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But. And I grew up in Kansas, and so it's honestly baffling to me that something to that extent we would have at least been taught right. as well, and then to hear even people in Tulsa don't know right and then this in this time period this was happening all over the country too so god um, so how do you still see those kind of effects do you see that imprinted def- on the psyche here in tulsa definitely it, it you know it took a long time for us to get a gas station on the north side of tulsa yeah no one wanted to go trip. they didn't want to touch it right anyway. and uh you know it's like uh people on my side of town we need we need groceries we need gasoline we need yeah services you know so um. do you see so you know obviously you're a musician right (laughs) do you see music playing a role in healing some of that racial divide does it definitely we're here at the oklahoma jazz hall which is a very nice hall thanks thanks for putting that together jason mcintosh okay letting us use it um but it it brings together uh, people's people from all cultures 
yeah. and all ethnic backgrounds. Um, yeah, that's a wonderful thing about jazz and blues. Yeah, it is and true. So um, I had another guest recently, a guy named Eddie Moore. Uh, he's a jazz pianist uh-huh. out of Kansas City, tours to Costa Rica quite often, and starting to bring some of the musicians they play with out there back to Kansas City. And we had a lot of conversation around similar ideas mm-hmm. of just race relations and how music can be this great divide right. of it. So, sorry, I no, interrupted no you there. <laughs> but um, I was, before we started, I was telling you a little bit about the high school mm-hmm. that I used to teach at, and it um, uh, was Booker T. Washington High School, and it's um, it was integrated, and uh, white students were bussed in. It was a historic black school. Okay. And so it's a, a wonderful place for students to, of all ethnic backgrounds and we have a number of schools here in Tulsa that um, are very similar in their ethnic makeup mm-hmm. and so um, there's a lot of good things that Tulsa has going for it but we're still cool. we're still fighting a lot of the effects of that 1921 even 100 years massacre. yeah right and that's what it is wild like it in some ways it seems foreign I, I mean I feel like I meet I'm lucky enough to meet many people who are just don't have that perspective of racism and bigotry right but in reality that's it's still deep mm-hmm. unfortunately in the country I think and, one of the first things I, I realized when I, I before we moved here I came to look for a place to live mm-hmm. and uh, uh, my wife was going to be going to the University of Tulsa which is a little bit south of uh, south and east of downtown okay and everybody said well don't look north I was like, well, why? <laughs> and I and uh, I didn't really want. I, I wanted to stay around the university anyway, so that's where we ended up renting yeah. the place. But um, after I rented the place, I I drove north and I saw homes like what I had lived in in Minneapolis and yeah. um, families sitting out on porches and neighbors together. And More community I, vibe. I'm like, oh. Yeah. What's wrong with the North? <laughs> I know, exactly. And then um, I went to a grocery store after we moved here, and um, I let a woman um, go in the door in front of me and held the door for her, an mm. African-American woman, older. And she looked at me with surprise on her face and said, well, thank you. Hmm. And I was like, well, this is just a normal thing for me. Yeah. But it was not a normal thing for her. Right. To have a white man opened the door. It's something she had an experience of living in the North right. Town. And so that both those things kind of had an effect on me. Yeah. So That's huge. Yeah. That's really huge. Yeah. That's my oldest son is African American. Uh-huh. And uh, like for me growing up, I, I grew up very I'm Puerto Rican, uh, German. My uncle married a black woman. Like I just grew up in this mixture of races and cultures. So racism to me in my mind, didn't exist anymore. Right. Like, the, those concepts didn't hit me. But then seeing life through his eyes uh-huh. and even getting to meet his dad and getting to know his dad and seeing life through his eyes as an African-American male in the suburban world of Kansas City kind of, again, just exposed me like, oh, wait, right. the rest of the world doesn't always work like that. Right. What seems normal to me is not at all. And, wow. Well, I, I feared for my students. When I was teaching high school, I'm talked to a number of them who had just gotten over uh gotten pulled over for driving black yep you know and and that's what they were experiencing i've gotten pulled over before you know driving back from visiting my 90 year old father in wisconsin i've gotten pulled over because i have long hair right and uh 
immediately assumed that I have drugs on me or something, and of course I don't do anything right. like that. So, but you know, it, 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 I I totally understand. I totally understand. And in, in this world today, we see we see it still omnipresent mm-hmm. in our society, racism. And that's one of the things I think that music really does well at. We, yeah. we can bring people together. You can go to a concert hall and see lots of different ethnicities. And I don't, I don't think it used to be like that, you know, yeah. uh, 100 well, years ago. And that's what's cool about right? the internet is like different genres are all mixing, mixing together, together, which then brings out a whole slew of different kinds yeah. of pe- people. Yeah. Where I even, uh, I know a lot of people look down on it in the arts world, but Little Nas X still like, it's just exciting to me to see here's a gay black man who's uh-huh. got the number one country song. And I'm like, all right, the game has completely changed. Yeah. Like there are open doors all uh, across the board. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard the Afro-Celt music. Afro-Celt. Okay, yeah, I have yeah. not. You know, that was um, I don't know, probably 20 years ago, but um, it's pretty cool. You know, I have hearing, to check it out. Hearing Irish music with lots of different rhythms <laughs> mixed to it. And, you know, people... Being an Irish musician myself, um, you know, when Riverdance came out, everybody's like, whew, that's Irish music. It's more Eastern European rhythms. Gotcha. Um, You're sitting there like, You know, that kind of stuff put with Irish fiddle, you know. Yeah. It's exciting, and it was different, and it was new, and it caught a lot of people's attention, and it got a lot of people into Irish music again, and... And that was wonderful. It can be but, the gateway to where you're right. like, hey, check out yeah. this and this. <laughs> but I totally understand. You know, I play with a lot of people that, who want to maintain the, you know, the, the purity of Irish music and play right. it like it used to be, too. Um, but it, it has changed so much. It changed in the 70s when people started putting guitar with it. But it, it even changed before that when people started putting piano with Irish music in the 20s. Yeah. You know, a, a fiddler was it would just go in fiddle? And, yeah, uh, it would be a lot of music in, played in unison. Okay. And so you would go to uh, like a, a fiddler like Michael Coleman, go into a recording studio to make a 78 recording, and uh, they'd just pull in a pianist from the from the concert hall or something yeah. to play. And it's hilarious because... You can hear the pianist playing in the wrong key. You know, he doesn't hear the chord changes. <laughs> just keeps going. He's just doing his thing. Yeah, just and doing his thing. And um, so... And but it broke some boundaries and expanded the art? It, it did. Land. It did, yeah. And, um, you know, and I've heard stories about in Ireland, even into the 1960s, that people didn't have electricity. You know, mm. they, they were still cranking their Victrola. <laughs> They're still doing it. Yeah. Now, have you you been to Ireland and performed out I there? Not, Is that, I have Okay. Uh, yeah, so... Um, we were talking about a little bit before if I if I've toured and I, yeah. I was busy raising my son. Yeah, that'll do it. Those kids take up a lot. <laughs> and so I've been thinking a lot more about performing. I released, mm-hmm. uh, I re-recorded a CD that I had originally done in 2002, and I wasn't happy with it. Yeah. So I redid that. It's the perpetual like, artist thing. It's like, oh, I hate yeah. this. I, I. <laughs> yeah. And I always tell myself nothing's perfect. Yeah. Uh, I that's one word with my students. I I tell parents cross off that word from your vocabulary. Right. Perfect. Um, and so I have to understand that myself and when I'm doing recordings, that nothing's perfect. And sometimes mistakes are the best things. Yeah. Um, the surprising things where you're like, oh, let's keep that. Yeah. That was actually yeah. great. I yeah. remember there's actually a song on an album I released in my former band where I hit the wrong chord and it went to this minor feel 
And just because it was a long day in the studio, my brain, you know, it's just kind of crapping out on me. And we ended up, that's, that's ended up being the harmonic structure underneath because like I, that actually felt better. Yeah. Uh, let's go with that, you yeah. know, and that can, that can work out. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's, there's lots of little things that, you know, song doesn't cut off how you want it or whatever. Yeah. Keep it. <laughs> now you do Celtic music, right? Um, Irish. Irish. Music. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm messing yeah, up. <laughs> Celtic is like more, a little bit more everything like Scottish and Welsh. And okay. So it's Breton. And, Breton, see yeah. all these things yeah. I need to learn. Yeah. Uh, so That's so good. Irish music. Irish. And you're Irish playing the music. fiddle in that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what's the difference between fiddle and violin? Um, I had a five-year-old tell me that once. He said the difference between a fiddle and a violin is a violin has strings and a fiddle has strands. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can play fiddle music on an expensive violin, and you can play classical music on a it's all, all approach. It's, it's and, how you play it. Yeah. It's how you play it. It's, it's the ornaments, the bowing, things like that. Right on. And so, you do rock as well, playing guitar I, and I singing, trying writing? I more back into that. Yeah, I just released an album on that about, of, of rock, all rock. Right I, I don't know. I, I don't even know how to describe it. I keep asking people, what do you think? <laughs> so, uh, and it's kind of all over the place. Some of the songs are go way back to college mm -hmm. that I was never happy with and I didn't ever have fiddle on them. Yeah. Um, and then some of them are more new. Um, I recorded it in three weeks and put it out. Yeah. So just got it out there. Just get it going. I, I did a writing exercise for a while where I think it was about three months straight where I forced myself to write, I think it was one to two songs a day. Uh -huh. and, but I only, you, I can only have one hour to do it. Yeah. Now, and again, these are like bones of yep. songs, not like fully produced by any means. But it was just like, because I got in that point where I would obsess. And you know, it was, it was a cool exercise yeah. of just like, yeah. let's get this thing out That's... And, and force some creativity out of there. This thing, use this thing. The voice memos. I oh have, yeah, I have like thousands of voice yeah, memos going. Yeah, and so that's what I've used this for. I'm driving in the car. I'm singing. And when I want to write music, um, for all you composers out there, um, I I stop listening to music. Yeah. I, I I can't listen to anything. I and then all of a sudden, like about a week into it. All this flood of ideas comes into my head. And Get so, kind of in your own head yep. and figure out what's in there. Just keep recording them. And so my, I did something very similar to what you were talking about, about writing a tune a day. Mm -hmm. And that was my, uh, my second album called From Within. Nice. Uh, I wrote 33 tunes um, all in a row. That's awesome. Man. And so a lot of those ended up on the, my second album. Um, and, and it was, it's kind of fun when I was doing it. I, I'd, I would print them out, um, I'd record them, put them on Facebook, either video or audio, and, yeah. and my students kept following along, and every time they come in for lesson, there'd be another six or seven tunes up on the wall, and I yeah. just taped them up on the wall all the way around <laughs> the room in my, my teaching studio, <laughs> they were just like, wow. And so I learned a lot about writing Irish music, music in the Irish style, um, from that uh -huh. and what to do, what was successful, what didn't work, and then getting the feedback from students. Yeah, and, and then and then I started teaching them to write. That's cool. And some of them really went with that, 
really loved it. So that's fun. That's real. I I taught privately a long time ago, and uh, it's been cool to see some of these kids where I met them at twelve, thirteen, where some of them are are forming their own careers out yeah. in the music world. You know, like I I don't think I have necessarily a direct role in that. Some of them I just kind of knew or taught one or two lessons, but it's it's cool just like tracking them and see how like that little spark of inspiration can lead them right. to to fall in love with it right. and then find their own way and make exactly. their own way in the music exactly. world. How many students do you have? Private? I, I have about 25 right now. 25, right on. So what, what started teaching for you? Um, when I was young, uh, my brother, my parents said that my brother, they thought he started kindergarten too young. Okay. And so they wanted to wait a year for me so I would be older for kindergarten. And they looked around for something for me to do. And uh, they saw an ad in the paper for a violin teacher, Ernie, Ernie Stonky, Ernie Stonky. And they recognized his name from my sister's middle school, that he was the violin teacher there, orchestra okay. director. They're like, okay, so and he's legit. So they're like, okay, okay, we'll start <laughs> violin lessons, something called the Suzuki method. Yeah. And Suzuki believed that every, every child could learn. That's awesome. And that learning music was like learning language and that we learned from listening. <laughs> Um, and then, you know, in the '40s, post-war era, uh, there were two aspects of that. There were only, uh, you know, if you even going way back in classical music, the only people that played were wealthy or kid, uh, sons of composers, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you know, not everybody had access to learning music or playing music. Um, but then, with the invention of the Victrola and records and the recording industry coming along, especially after World War II, um, Suzuki thought, you know, this is how students learn. Mm-hmm. And even at that time period, there were only about three you know, master teachers coming up with this idea that children could learn. Yeah. Um, you know, or <coughs> Suzuki. Um, and so, uh, it was a kind of a novel approach. Yeah. And, uh, and a way to disseminate it right. to uh, ideally the masses, mm-hmm. in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and Suzuki had a, a, another idea. Um, a big part of his teaching was that music could change the world. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that's what Pablo Casals said about Suzu- the Suzuki method. That's awesome. That he really thought that music could change the world. That's a Casals quote. But um, Suzuki... He, he didn't teach just because he wanted to teach music. He mm-hmm. taught because he wanted to nurture hmm. students to have a kind heart and a gentle soul. Yeah, and find it through the discipline and the passion that you right. find in music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you, you sent me some questions about being an artist, being a performer, yeah. um, and it's, it's why, why do I teach? You know, why do I play music? And, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, it's it's getting the emotion out there mm-hmm. when you perform or when you write a song, um, and you know I've gone through last three four years have been pretty emotional for me and and it's it's helped with my songwriting. You know you look back on the <laughs> that Beatles, it <laughs> you know it's like well Paul McCartney if he wrote some great songs but but John's you know <laughs> those are the ones that make you cry. Yeah yeah 
And, you know, that's the thing that made them so great, that the, they were all working together on that. And bringing the emotion yeah, into it. Yeah. So for you, it sounds like teaching is this idea of inspiring others, right, inspiring right. youth uh, to grow these characters, not mm-hmm. just the music, but to grow in character. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, some students, they don't, they don't, they're like me growing up. I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, I got in high school and I was in a hardcore punk rock band. And <laughs> I, uh, by the As time, a violin sits in front of you. That's what I love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, my violin teacher, he was so nice. And he knew I was still in music, and he didn't mind that I wasn't practicing this thing. See, that's cool. My my classical teacher in college for voice, he basically said, I, I will not teach you if you continue in your rock band that I was leading. Oh. And it's a long story, but yeah. we ended up working oh. it out. But he was very like, I, I convinced him otherwise. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> but he basically true. said, don't come back. Yeah. And yeah, it's that. that's cool well, to see, hear that he was I, very open to... Like you exploring other different genres, even as you learn this method. And I got to I got to college in my freshman year. I was a violin major, mm. and my professor uh, Tyrone Grief. Um, I talked to him later about this, but he he pulled me aside into his office um, in the spring semester of that first year, and he said, "Eric, violin's not right for you. You're not practicing." <laughs> and I was devastated. Yeah. You know, I went to a practice room and cried. I was like, what a, what the heck am I going to do? Exactly. Um, yeah, I, that would be a hard thing. I never to wanted to teach at that time. I, I you know, I, I wanted to perform. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily violin. Um, punk band. Punk rock performance. Oh, yeah. that, that was it. But, you know, I was playing <laughs> bass guitar in a show choir. We were doing, like, jazz standards and okay. stuff. And I was doing a lot of different kinds of music. Yeah. Um, and I kind of pushed back against the punk rock at the time, and you know, and uh, we started another band, um, a rock band, and played at some bars and stuff like that, and that was fun. Um, I'm still in contact with those guys. Um, That's awesome. But, uh, and then after that, uh, moved to Minneapolis for four years. But uh, before we moved, uh, we went to an Irish music concert in Madison. Uh, my wife and I, and her being Irish descent, um, and me just having a little bit of Irish in me. Just enough. I think to say it here. <laughs> but um, we went to this, we stumbled into this concert, and it, it turned out to be a super group of Irish musicians. Nice. Um, Kevin so Berg, some, Andy Irvine, Jackie Daly. Someone into a great group yeah, at this moment. Mm-hmm. So. A group, Patrick Street. I think it was their first show of their first, of their first tour. Um, and it was amazing. And afterwards, she said, my wife said to me, you know, you could do that. And I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be up for trying that. You know, nice. I didn't even have my, my fiddle with me. I was at my parents. And so I went and got it and started practicing. And put and some strings on it. Yeah, what put you some did. strings on it. <laughs> and we went up to Minneapolis, um, moved there for four years, and I started getting more involved in the Irish community and playing Irish music. Uh, really had some people that helped me out, Jody Dowling, Tom Klein, um, Kate Wade. We formed a band, um, played dances and things like that. Yeah. I really saw, saw the importance of the dancing with the music. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it is that energy right. when you hear a great Irish band mm-hmm. that just like grabs you and pulls you. But I really got more into into playing. Yeah. And uh, and by the time we moved down here, after you know, living here for twenty years, I've gotten more involved in my 
getting back to my classical playing and mm-hmm. practicing um, and trying to keep up with my students. <laughs> <laughs> and raise a son. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. But, you know, trying to inspire people who don't know what they, they want to do for a living, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't think you have to know right away. You know, there's right. people out there that are like, what am I doing with my life? You know, I'm in college. Yeah. I've played music all my life. Am I a musician? Yeah. Am I going to be a musician? You don't have to decide. Right. Just some days I feel like I'm still deciding. I'll be in the you know like I'm on tour right now and I'm driving down. I'm like, what am I doing? Yeah. Am I am I really supposed to be? Okay, I am. Okay, keep going. You know. Yeah. But I feel like it changes too, and right. I think that's we. And you can explore different lives in a sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I I owned a roofing company uh, for a while, you know, and it's like, but I learned so much from that experience that then I took into the next experience. I worked in nonprofits and and it kind of meanders. And I I had that perspective where you had to have that one thing. But I I really think even down to writing and creating, even if it's not done professionally, all those different experiences you can pull from. And in a way, life's long. You can explore different things. Like, you, you are given this choice in life. You can do something that you don't like to do to make money mm-hmm. and then do what you love on the side. Right. Or you could do what you love to do mm-hmm. and maybe not make any money. <laughs> but <laughs> That can be the you, all you know, too you're real happy reality. Or, right. you know, or is there some balance between that? And so I had one of those jobs like right out of college. I yeah. worked at the post office in the graveyard shift and I was, I was miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, and I met so many wonderfully gifted people. There was a guy that was a bow maker, these things, mm-hmm. and he couldn't make them because he was working 10 to 12 hours a day and, right. and making a lot of money. And But, but his passion's going. Yeah, so many unhappy people there. I was like, no, I can't do that. And <laughs> so like, I'm that's, out. <laughs> that's what got me into teaching. That's cool. Um, and looking into teaching. And so, like, figure out how can you apply this music passion right. in a financially sustainable way? Was that part of it? Or is simply just let me pursue what something that, that financially a sustainable way? I don't know what that is. Oh, so, like, so. <laughs> I'm joking. Oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> Sorry, I'm slow. It's, I see, it's, I see. It is hard to be a musician. And yeah, you have to do that a is lot. true. Um, and, like, I, I like, I stay before I was trying to do high school teaching and I was so busy all the time that I found that I wasn't playing I wasn't loving music mm-hmm. uh, uh, I was working such long hours uh, teaching till 3.30 at school coming home and teaching lessons till 8 or 9 and then going to a coffee shop and doing work late and repeat, repeat, repeat mm-hmm. and and it was, I know that life. Yeah, <laughs> it was just nonstop for basically this working for benefits. Yeah, um, and so I wanted to get back to private teaching. I was so happy. Like uh, last year, um, three students of mine, two of them that I taught since they were four or five, um, it, were all in the Tulsa Youth Symphony, and nice. they were sitting. Uh, Concert master, assistant concert master, and third chair. So one, two, three. So like this is paying off. Yeah, the investment and, in them. <laughs> uh, so so proud of all of them. Um, and they might not all be doing music in college, but I know that they love it. Yeah. 
Yeah. When I think that discipline that you learn, I see it in, in martial arts or sports. My boys, all four of my boys are actually into sports, not mm-hmm. really music, which is really funny. But, <laughs> but the discipline that you learn in practicing some kind of art form, yeah. uh, whether it be a physical art or uh, music or graphic arts, I think that discipline and channeling your passion can be applied in so many ways. Oh, definitely. Long term. My, so. my son played baseball as well, college baseball. And um, after his freshman year of college, he came back and played in men's league here. And he had the, his worst pitching outing he ever had. Mm-hmm. And we had one of those silent car rides home. You ever had those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're like, what, <laughs> no one wants to really say what anything. Could I say? <laughs> it's like, so I that say? was rough. <laughs> yeah. And so we're, we're riding home and driving home and he says to me, Dad, I should thank you for all those violin lessons. I never have. And I'm like, why? Why this now? And he said, well, I was out on the pitching mound, and I was, I was horrible. And, and I, I just, it was like being at a recital, and you play a bad note, and you just have to go on. Wow. And that's a life lesson right there. You, you make mistakes in life. Yeah. I've made oodles of them and you have to go on and you have to find the good you have to find what's what you do well and 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 not do it just for yourself mm-hmm. but for others there's a lot of self-love That's... stuff out there you know and i yeah you know being like kind of depressed <clears throat> a few years going back and stuff um i i've read all this you gotta love yourself it's like it, I think a lot more of it comes from caring about other people. Yeah. I find the whole self-love thing kind of selfish. Well, yeah, way, it can become know? just completely self-involved. Yeah. And then you find out. I, I feel like you can only true, truly know yourself in context of other people. Yeah. Because the, every new person I meet, which I love meeting new people. I love, like we met yesterday yeah. in a coffee shop. And here we are. And I love that because I feel like I learned something and take something away from each person hopefully giving something to them too right. but that's the at least for me i feel like that's the only way to truly get to know really who i am uh-huh. and or who i want to be yeah. one day yeah. you know so i hear you uh say kind of this word a lot in there and it's happy you know and and what's making you happy and it seems almost cliche but it's the thing i keep coming back to it's like at the end of the day how can you position your life so that you can find joy and find right. happiness and that, but I, so I was just thinking about your son saying that with the violin. I, I imagine that felt really good as a dad it did. to hear him. <laughs> it did. Yeah, I felt like it, it all paid off. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it helps him still today, I think. Yeah. I hope. Um, and I hope it helps my other students as well. I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. They make some sort of connection. And I have no hopes or, or like preconceived hopes that my students go on and be concert violinists. Yeah. Um, I just told, like Suzuki said, that it nurtures a kind heart, gentle soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have had some students go on college and play violin, be violin majors. There's one of my students right now. I'm so proud of him. He's in the symphony here. Nice. Um, and in both of the symphonies. And so that's pretty neat. And and that's a gift, even if he becomes a lawyer or a doctor, whatever he ends up doing, if it's not professionally violin, mm-hmm. he could still continue to play violin, right. even in a, a symphony, if he exactly. can make the time. Yeah. I have a buddy who's a lawyer, uh, like high, high-end law firm, and but he's a brilliant singer. And he found a way where he still practices law. And then 
I, him and his family, they do musicals, uh, mm-hmm. like the big musicals in Kansas City. And they, so basically that's their lives during the summer uh, together as a family. Yeah. And then he's able to make it work. And that's what's cool about music. It can keep going in so many different capacities. Right. But and now, I, oh, good. Yeah, Sorry. I think some people, you know, they have hobbies and they have, we have music. And yeah. I, I think music is me and my dad collect stamps and he loves his stamp collection and everything. I, I never really saw the purpose in those little. You're like, yeah, it's cool there. <laughs> but um, in music, to me, it's it's more obscure, and I don't think some people get it. But I've, I've hardly ever met – I don't think I've ever met a person who doesn't like music. Right. You know, they like it. They might not be able to perform, but mm-hmm. they like it. And that's one thing I got from my dad. He loved to sing. He couldn't sing very well, but he loved to sing. And he used to sing me songs that I realized were Woody Guthrie songs. Yeah. You know? Uh, and, uh, and you told me about the Woody Guthrie Museum. Yeah. And I I, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately I can't check it out. I got to, yeah. right after this, I'm headed to Austin, but uh, I'll have to, it's next time phenomenal. coming through, yeah. it'd be cool. Um, but that right here in Tulsa right as well. Yeah, <laughs> it's just amazing. But um, music, you know, I, I, I just think of the movie Young Frankenstein, you know, where he's doing this trying to capture capture the music and his hands we we as musicians we we make something vibrate mm-hmm. and send these vibrations through the air molecules that bounce off of our yeah. ear and gets translated into music and and then somehow we have to make it emotional uh, and when i was younger my teachers would talk about tone and i was like what's tone you know, yeah. that sound production thing, you know, and deep tone. And, um, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And then I had a teacher um, later when I was studying how to teach. He used to say, amount of bow hair, bow hair equals amount of energy. Hmm. And I'm like, energy? Energy and tone. But the one thing that you can't teach is emotion. Yeah, how put emotion in music. You can inspire it, I think, but right. no, I feel what you're saying. I've had students who play very beautifully, but they don't play with emotion. Yeah, I've had students who play with such emotion it brings me to tears. Well, I've seen that where vocalists who are every note's perfect, yeah, but they're yeah they're disconnected. Um, or you see this rock guy, or you know whatever jazz jazz girl, whoever. Yeah. Who's, it may not be perfect, but again, the way they're conveying it, their body, their emotion behind it, uh-huh. hits you in a way that's like, wow. And that's, you can't write that on the page. <laughs> there's a thought I on one of the I wrote it down uh, in the gym this morning. I was listening to this podcast, and it was they're studying this girl who has there's a certain kind of synesthesia. Uh, where they actually feel, uh, where, you know, like synesthesia, where right. you see music as color, right. but there's an actual brain dysfunction is what they call it, of if I see someone hug you and I have this ailment, I feel, literally feel, even mm-hmm. your brain's firing as if you feel someone hug you. Right. So it, it becomes compounded. Empath. What's that? Empath. In, in a way, right? right. And, but they, and they've done, neuroscience have done a lot of studies on it. It's a very fascinating podcast, but... They boil it down to where the girl said, who they interviewed, who had this thing, one of the, one of the girls. And she said, I, I feel like, like thoughts are matter. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what hit me, where it's like for her to have a thought or to see something, it actually becomes like this physical matter that impacts her. That made me think of music, where it is that, you know, it was Bob Marley. When it but, hits you, you don't feel pain, you know, and it's, 
I don't know. It's, it's probably I'll be thinking about that thought. I'm sure all for like the next seven hours. But yeah, no, it hits I, upon what I, you're saying to me. I totally believe in it, and I think a lot of it comes down to observation skills. Mm-hmm. The my my mentors of teachers who I, I felt were very good teachers were very good at their observation skills. Um, one of my teachers, Craig Timmerman, um, he would take like a minute to respond and hmm. you know to somebody and I, I always wish I was that patient in my response to students I, I talk too much <laughs> American <laughs> teachers talk too much that's what Japanese <laughs> teachers say but um, I think uh, his observation skills um, when we were in a class a uh, pedagogy class mm-hmm. we were ob- observing him teach and afterwards we met in our class and he said, what did you notice? And the teachers were responding, well, you worked with them with this, you did this. And I raised my hand and I said, you never once looked at their fingers or their bow. <laughs> and he smiled and he said, what was I looking at? I said, you were looking at their eyes. <laughs> you were looking at the student's eyes the whole time. And he said, the eyes are a window into their soul, into yeah. what they are thinking about. And, and so I put that into my practice, watching, and every once in a while I'm like watching the fingers. I'm like, well, let's, let's rely on our other senses. I talk to my students about their senses. I'm like, what are your senses? <laughs> Do you use your sense of smell for playing? <laughs> Do you use your sense of taste? No. Use your <laughs> eyes, your ears. Your sense of touch, and sense of touch in different ways, not just this, but this. Yeah. Um, being a violinist, you're constantly, should be feeling these next to each other. Right. Um, and then there's that sixth sense, right? Mm-hmm. Mind reading. Um, we kind of joke about that, but that is a lot of observation skills. Being able to notice body language. These little things. things. Like that. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to figure out how I should sit right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get that. So, um, well, uh, are you familiar with the book called Talent Code by Daniel Coyle? No, I'm not. Uh, amazing book uh, where they break down uh, the top performers in music and sports and in math throughout the world. Mm-hmm. And then they try to distill what makes them so great in, in their own studies. And it's a fascinating book. But one of the things they traced down to the musicians was all of them, every single one of these top performers could trace back to their first teacher. Mm-hmm. And almost every single one of them, the first teacher wasn't the greatest teacher in, you know, upscale New York City at $1,000 an hour. It was this teacher who just simply cared about them and instilled a passion for music. Right. And, and, you know, there's a lot of inferences, just like any kind of book. But I thought that was really interesting to me that literally some of the greatest performers, even down like pop world, classical world, everything, it came down to this teacher who just cared about them and and instilled that passion. Right. It sounds like you're instilling that kind of passion in a lot of other students oh, I as hope. well. I hope. Because <laughs> it's that love, I think, that, that drives it. Like for me, you know, the things I do is like uh, on tour and like my family's at home and like all these different things. There's so many things wrapped up into it. But there's just, I've tried so many things in my life where it's like this is the only thing where I really find joy and yeah. and where I'm not, miserable every yeah. day and where I, you know, it's like, <clears throat> it's that passion that pushes you through those, 
those long nights, the hard things, the emotions, and, you know, as artists, at least for me, I know I can be super emotional. Um, but and we've kind of hit on this, but Live and Create is kind of the name of the podcast. And right. in the end, trying to figure out what do people think living a great life is, creating great things. So, I, and it's always fascinating as I'm starting to do more of these interviews because we kind of hit on the topics as we have the conversations. But if you had to distill it down, what does living a great life mean to you? Um, being able to express yourself. Um, being able to love what you do. Mm. Trying to be happy along the way. Yeah. I think. Still, you, and that's what's interesting is people are tagging it too where I think it's like this constant learning and growing yeah. for a lot of us too. But. Yeah, because uh, again, some of my teachers instilled that in me that you would never stop learning mm -hmm. um, one of my teachers said teachers to be wary of are the ones who think that they know everything yeah. and uh, just the last few days I've been here at the jazz hall watching um, a great conductor teach mm -hmm. uh, we had a three day workshop a conductor workshop and even though I'm not conducting anymore uh, right now uh, we each got to do a little conducting and just uh, just all the subtle motions, you know, how you use your wrist and how, uh, just so many great things. He said, 70,000 thoughts go through your mind every day. So we should write things down. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, everything happens before it happens. He said that was a Casals quote as well. Huh, I like everything that. Everything happens before it happens. And so if you want people to play loud, you better tell them to beat before that you want them to play loud the next beat. I like but it. But that extends to life, too. I mean, so many of these things extend to life. That's true. Everything happens before it happens. Yeah. But I think about performance, uh, even like jazz world. I spent a very brief time studying jazz in college, long enough to find out I'm not a jazz player. <laughs> but I did, I, I found a love for the music in that, but I knew, it's like, I think I'm more of a rock guy because I seen the new cats coming in and they're kicking my ass on the guitar. But, um, but that was the thing. It's the greatest ones were the ones who were spending eight to 10 hours a day in the practice room. There was one dude, brilliant saxophonist, freshman coming in, but just slamming every, every concert, all improv, but, Every day, yeah. In the, in the McCain Auditorium is where I went to school, and and so I, I lived my life in that building for a few years. And in the morning, I get there seven a.m. right before class. He's coming out of the practice room. I'd get lunch, come back. He's coming out of the practice yeah. room. I'd be there late at night, get ready to do some drills and whatever. And he's still coming out of the practice room. Ten thousand like, hours. He, yeah, he prepared. The only way he could execute in that moment was he decided. I'm going to be ready for that mm -hmm. moment. I like that. Everything happens before it happens. You can talk about the Beatles <laughs> again, you know. 10,000 hours put in in Hamburg yep. before they even recorded and two oh, albums yeah. a year for many years. Yeah, that story is so inspiring of yeah. like, like for me, I, I talk about hustle a lot on my social media stuff and, and that's, you know, for me, I went that season where it's just, you know, okay, I need to become a better writer so let me write more. I'm in a different phase now um, where I'm trying now to hone down and really craft each each word each moment and then and then also starting to do like co-writes and that mm -hmm. kind of stuff um but yeah doing these different seasons of just dig in if you want to learn it there are it. <laughs> a few special people in the world <clears throat> fritz chrysler was one of them great violinist mm. um i heard a story about him that 
you know, he and there's quotes that he didn't practice. He didn't, That's crazy. Didn't That's like Wes practice. Montgomery. I heard about that. Where yeah. he just never would practice. I was yeah. like, oh man, you had to yeah. be that. <laughs> now I wonder what they would have been like if they would have. That's true. But because that kind of fools your mind too when you have that ability. Mm-hmm. You know, a story about Chrysler I heard was that. Um, his wife was like, yeah, you need to practice. And so she would lock him in his room. Mm-hmm. And then um, she realized he was going out the window down the fire escape. And so she would lock him in his room without his pants. <laughs> uh, to make him practice. To make him practice. And, you know, he would get a, a manuscript, that some piece that he never played before, mm-hmm. uh, study it on the train, get to the concert hall and play it. See, that's wild. Yeah, there, there are those people yeah. who... They just do it, and you're like, oh. but it, that, and I've had students like that too. It fools them into the idea that they don't need to practice, so they don't need to practice efficiently, yeah, because it comes so easy for them. Yeah. Um, and they still need to they, more than ever. Um, it's like teaching adult students too. They, they're like, I'm an adult. I shouldn't have to do this right. like these many repetitions as those little children that are playing circles around me. Yeah. Uh, it's like, no, you actually need to do more because of your brain chemistry and your It's producing myelin slower and yeah. myelin <laughs> Yeah. So. so creating great things. Yeah. What, what does that look like to you? Um, creating great things. I've, I've created songs before, tunes and whatnot, you know. Um, that doesn't have emotion, and I think I've gotten more in touch with emotion and putting it into music. Yeah. Um, some people have helped me with that, either positively or negatively. <laughs> they um, contributed well, <laughs> one way yeah. or the other. But you know how what you when you play a note, you know, there's a lot that you can do with it. You could just play. You know, mm. you could you could start it lightly and increase the tone. You can start the vibrato very still and then increase the vibrato. You know, and it, that's you get more emotion out of those yeah. different variables. But it's still it's just still just mechanics. There has to be something. But how you apply those mechanics coming out in an emotional way? Yeah. Well, and that's what I've been wrestling a lot with lyrical choices as I as I'm writing my next batch of songs that I hope to release in 2020 and as I dig into different artists that I love I'm trying to study them trying to study why they you know ask why why did they make that choice why they and I keep coming back to they simply had something to say right and I I think I I hit a, a wall for a season where I don't think I had anything new to say. So, yeah. And even I, a good friend of mine, his producer, he's like, you need to stop writing. Uh-huh. You need to go take your kids to the park and go have fun. And yeah. you, know, you need to go out and experience life because it, essentially I think he was trying to say in, in his own way, like you have nothing left to say because yeah. you've, you're, you've, I guess I was just wrapping myself up in the work as opposed to the passion and uh-huh. the life and and bringing that across in creation. But that's cool to hear the difference. It's one note, but one note, each one play. distinctly so different. Uh-huh. And that's, yeah. And then what harmony you put with that and everything. I mean, uh, there's, there's only 12 notes, you know, and when, with Western music. <laughs> um, yeah. Wait, wait, 
how many possibilities can you you know there's a joke about uh, Irish music that there's only one Irish jig it's the same notes different order <laughs> a lot of people hear it like that too they're just like oh, another Irish jig it's like ACDC you know? they played the same song yeah, for they, you know 20 something years essentially did. and uh, it still connects with a lot of people it and it gets them yeah. hyped you know yeah. <laughs> like hey we got a new album it's the same song same for 45 song. minutes yeah. and uh, but they're saying something that's connected to a group of people and yeah. everything. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for making the time. Oh, sure. I love the conversation and definitely uh, next time I come through Tulsa, have to connect and uh, again and, and hear how things are progressing for you, man. Yeah, that's great. It's so nice to meet you. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, so these are two tunes. Um, the first one is called The Farmer of Florence. I wrote it um, when I was writing my 33 tunes in a row. The first, uh, this was the fourth day um, and it's named after my uncle from Florence, South Dakota, who died on that day. Um, and then the, I'll go into another tune, a jig called The Beginning, which was the first one I wrote. The last one was called The End. Actually, it wasn't the last one. The last one was called Okay, That's Enough, because another tune popped into my head the next day. Okay, so here's um, The Farmer of Florence. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to the Live and Create podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe and leave a comment or a review. The Live and Create podcast.